All right, so the men podcast. Here we go. Talking bass fishing today. America's fish. And I didn't coin that phrase. I thought I did. I actually thought I made that up. And because uh, I was thinking about recording this podcast over the last week. And I was like, man, bass, they are America's fish. And then uh, I went to Wikipedia something about bass. <laughs> Largemouth bass or the black bass, as it's also been called. And uh, there was America's fish. So there you are. Wikipedia said it, not me. So I want to talk about bass fishing for so many reasons. Um, one, bass fishing is awesome. For some reason, with monkfly fishermen, it is not the most popular species. Uh, I'm not sure why it's not more popular. Um, I'll kind of dive into that. Now, uh, um, yeah, dive into it right now. Um, I put a bunch of thought into this because I love bass fishing. I love trout fishing. I love steelhead, salmon, bonefish, saltwater, tarpon, whatever. I like to fish all sorts of stuff. Anything that bites good and fights hard and lives in a beautiful place. Um, there's all sorts of different species that you can fish, but bass are definitely among one of the most accessible. Yet to fly fishermen, we don't really prioritize them as a species. People will drive across the country to fish trout, and they will drive, well, hardly, they, they won't even fish bass in the same county, for crying out loud, sometimes. And one of the reasons it seems like to me, uh, other than trout eat bugs or insects, is that it requires the use of a boat to, to do it properly or well. I'll just say bass fishing typically requires the use of a boat. And that can be a barrier to entry among some people. Um, so use of a boat is one thing. Uh, fly anglers love moving water. They like the sound of moving water. You might hear moving water in the background right now. I'm sitting on the banks of the Yakima River. But that shouldn't stop you from being a bass angler. Bass fishing is great. Um, I've kind of been, been reborn somewhat as a largemouth angler uh, over the last uh, couple of years uh, as my sons uh, have begun to fish more and begun to fish independently. Uh, Mom takes them, and they're, they're 13 and 11 as of this podcast today, and uh, during the summer, uh, my wife is a vice principal at an elementary school, and so she has a little bit more flexibility in the summer than I do when I'm fishing and, and guiding and working a lot. But she'll take them down to the local, any of the number of the local lakes. They'll launch their kayaks, and they can go out and they can bass fish independently. Close to the house, right? Great fishing, potential for large fish. And generally speaking, lots of opportunity because they might catch small bass, they might catch panfish. They'll usually they'll lip one or two good ones in the course of a day. So my my sons have kind of got me excited about this again because they are absolutely crazy about bass fishing. They're absolutely nuts for it, and absolutely crazy for bass fishing so it kind of reminds me how cool it is and what a great opportunity it is for somebody living anywhere literally bass are found in all 50 states uh maybe they're in alaska maybe not but they are found in all 50 states and part of the reason is anglers wanted bass everywhere um they were trucking them on railroad cars all over this country uh over the last couple hundred years and uh so it is also said to be the most popular uh, sport in America as well. And um, and I'm not sure how they measure that. I think it's by participation, but it's a multi-billion 
dollar industry uh, for good reason. Bass are fun to catch. So, anyway, there's kind of the general background about it. I'm going to teach you some tips that I know um, on how to get into this and how to get into bass fishing and uh, things that you need and maybe some things you don't need. Okay. So, number one, uh, bass live close to where you're at. More than likely, within a couple of minutes of your house, you have some type of water, warm water ecosystem that contains bass. And it probably contains panfish as well, um, which is kind of a nice aside when the bass aren't biting. So accessibility is key, and there are public waters. We have 640 million acres of public land in this country. I've said this quote before. Within that 640 million acres, there are a lot of bass ponds and lakes found within that 640 million acres that you have access to right now today. Okay. So that's another motivation to get out there. Uh, the next one is, uh, you know, bass are a really resilient species. Well, we have all sorts of trouble with salmon and steelhead numbers, and we have inconsistent runs from year to year. And rivers in general um, can be a little bit temperamental. Um, they get dirty. They get warm uh, in the summer. And uh, during the spring, you know, runoff conditions can be tumultuous all through May and June which happens to be the same time that the bass bite is on. So uh, consistency, uh, you're not going to get any surprises generally when you go out to the lake. Uh, you're not just going to show up one day and it's high and dirty like the river can be. Um, so my formula uh, for bass fishing, I generally uh, like to, to target smaller waters. Uh, if I can find something that is anywhere from say five acres to say 40 acres on the big side uh, as far as a body of water that's what I'm going for and in my area and one of the number one ways that I, I use two methods for discovering new places to bass fish and one of them is going to be our Department of Fish and Wildlife website and that is going to I'm going to use the filter the, the go fish or fish Washington filter where I can choose the county I want to investigate and I can choose the species, and it will give me a report on what lakes that are known to have that particular species. Okay, so that's one thing I can do in Washington State. And we have great bass fishing in the Columbia River Basin. It's, it's amazing. So I can do that. The next thing I can do is uh, I can use an app called Base Map on my desktop. This is where I can, I can start to look at size of water and things like that and access points and whether the, the lakes that I'm getting... Uh, in my report from the Department of Fish and Wildlife, how am I going to access, you know, I can get those lakes, right? But I need to figure out how to get on those lakes, and that's where that base map program comes in really handy. If you go to basemap.com slash reds, download that app, and uh, I just suggest getting the pro version, just get it done right off the bat. But you can actually see a lot of these lakes might be part private, part public, uh, there's a couple right here in my, my own valley um, that are private on one half, public on the other. In that base map program, there's some tools in there and some features that you can quickly deduce how and where to access these lakes. So I prefer smaller lakes for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, you're generally not going to share those uh, share those small lakes with the big bass boats and uh, people really uh, fishing a lot of big hardware uh, and uh, and and you're not, it's not going to be picked over 
by highly capable bass anglers. You're not going to be following, you know, three or four bass boats, uh, you know, down the shoreline uh, on those small lakes. A lot of them don't even have boat launches. Those are my favorite kind. Um, the next thing is wind. You know, wind can be a real issue out there on the open water fly fishing. So the smaller lakes generally offer a little bit better shelter from the wind, especially if you fish the lee sides of those lakes, you know, the upwind side. You can generally get pretty good shelter uh, from the wind on those lakes. You don't want to be out there in small craft when there's 20 mile an hour winds and you're white capping and that kind of thing. So uh, smaller is better from that standpoint. Uh, regarding crafts, uh, I really just encourage you to use boats. I did a podcast uh, earlier this year about getting a boat. I think the title of the podcast was You Need a Boat. If you really want to get the most out of your angling, I don't care if you do something cheap. Um, you know, most people who go real cheap regret it, <laughs> um, but that's up for you to decide. But, um, you can fish out of small boats. Um, you know, I like stuff, you know, under 16 feet or 14 feet. I think if you were making a bass fishing plan for yourself to go stick some good largemouth this spring, I would say a smaller boat that doesn't require use of a launch is a really good tool. Um, being able to have it, um, in or on the back of a pickup. Uh, if it's going to be a two-person boat, you know, something 12 to 14 feet long on the big end. Uh, I used to fish in a 10-foot Livingston, uh, me and my buddy Jake Cooper, all through high school. And uh, that 10-foot Livingston, man, we, we weighed that thing down pretty good, but uh, it worked for us. So smaller is good, in a sense, with these boats. Don't feel like you have to have a bass boat. Uh, I like a watermaster boat. I like a personal watercraft. Um, I like to have fins on because I can hold my position in a light breeze and I can keep that boat super stable, uh, which is critical for being a successful angler. So I use a watermaster boat. You can use a float tube. You can get a generic watermaster. Whatever you want to do, if you want to do it once and do it right, and let me add this too. All right. You can buy as cheap a stuff as you want. I rode across a lake uh, the other day, and uh, it's a private lake, and uh, I rode all the way to the cro- across, and it was pretty windy, and I was, I think I was like three quarters of the way across, and I go, I-, I was like, I don't know that I would want to do that. It was a little bit windy, and I'm r- cranking on the oars, and I also have fins, you, you know, I'll put a link to the Watermaster Boats in the video, dis- or the podcast description here, but... I was like, man, if I got to the other side and I had one of my chambers on this raft start leaking, I don't know how in the hell I would get back around to the other side of the lake. Um, you would be in a real pickle and cheap boats do that on you. You'll get leaky seams. You'll get a bad valve. You'll get some kind of pinhole leak in it. But with Watermaster, you just don't deal with all that crap, man. They're just built well. They're built to last the seams on them are practically bulletproof. They're a really trustworthy boat. And if you are going to row yourself out onto lakes, I suggest you have a decent boat. So that's my two cents. If it's an inflatable, you know, get a decent boat. You can you, you can get an old wooden pram for all I care if it's a hard boat. You'll see leaks. Man, when you're out there all day in an inflatable boat on a lake and that thing starts leaking, it is a pain in the neck. Okay. So I like a personal watercraft. I like a watermaster. It's a hybrid system. I can use oars. I can use fins. I can do it either way. And that's my personal preference. Um, regarding tackle, you don't need a lot of gear 
Um, I'm going to make a couple of recommendations. Again, you know, my job is to give you lots of options, but I want you to do it right um, if you're able. And I like a seven-weight rod. Uh, I want a seven-weight rod because I want the rod to be durable enough to pull fly. Well, it needs to be durable enough to handle repeatedly pulling flies out of reeds or grass. And that's really, really hard on your typical five-weight trout rod, okay? Typical five-weight trout rod simply is not going to be as effective, and you're going to break it. I promise you. Not the first time. Maybe the second time, or it might break later on when you're out there on the water, but you're going to be using heavy flies with jig head style eyes a lot of the time, uh, pitching them up against the reeds, and you're going to hit the, uh, you're going to have impact where the fly is going to hit the rod tip once in a while with those heavy flies. You're going to snag in lily pads, you're going to snag in grass a little bit, and that's really hard on those really finely tapered lighter rods like five weights, okay? So, I like a seven weight rod. You can get by with a burly six weight if it's built for streamer fishing or it's built for bass fishing. My favorite rods are an eight foot nine inch six weight Sage Payload and a nine foot seven weight Sage Maverick. Um, those two rods are the rods that I'm using for my bassing. Um, and I don't need those weighted rods for bass. They, they fight pretty decent. They jump, they pull hard. It, they're fun to catch. They jump great and pull hard, but I don't need the heavy rod weight because of the fight of a bass. I need the heavy rod weight because when I when I snag, if I'm pulling a fly through submerged weeds or algae, I need to be able to rip that fly out of there quickly without doubling the rod over in a big, deep, flexible bend. I want that rod to just rip the fly free, make another cast. Rip the fly free, make another cast. Um, it is going to add a lot of enjoyment to this sport when you have the right rod for the job. So burly sixes or seven weight rods, not over nine feet long. The longer those rods get, the less accurate they are. When I get into casting, I'll tell you now and I'll tell you then, it's a precision game. The better you can cast, the more accurate you are, the more bass you're going to catch. That's one thing I love about it. Okay. So Gear-wise, we know how to set ourselves up. I use, for largemouth, I use a floating line exclusively. Um, even when the bass are sitting deeper, um, and they will sit, sometimes i got to catch them in six or eight feet of water. Uh, even when the bass are sitting deeper, I prefer to use a floating line. Uh, the line I like and recommend is a Rio Big Nasty, uh, and, and that's what it's for. It's for throwing big nasty flies, trying to catch big nasty fish. So I really like that Rio Big Nasty. I feel like I can control the distance of it well, which is really important. It's not like a shooting head. Uh, and it turns over a big fly. It makes a big fly pretty comfortable to cast. So that's my fly line of choice. If you try to use a Rio Gold or a Scientific Angler's Infinity or something like that, those lines will work if you keep that fly in really good motion and you cast really hard um, and you keep the line really tight. Those lines will do it, uh, but for delivering a fly in a very kind of relaxed and controlled manner where you can kind of pitch it, you need a little bit more head weight or tip weight in that fly line. Rio Big Nasty is very good for that. So that's my recommendation. Regarding your leaders, um, Rio Big Nasty leaders are a good place to start. A six-foot leader, uh, when I'm working the reeds, is about what I like to have. I don't need much more than that as long as I set the fly line down relatively soft. Uh, six feet is adequate. 
but I might throw a, a, a piece of, of 12 pound tippet and I recommend the Scientific Angler's Absolute Tippet uh, in 12 pound fluorocarbon um, if I'm going to add tippet and not the stuff that's measured in X. That stuff is really supple and flexible. You want the stiff tippet. Okay. So the setup is really pretty simple. Floating line, you know, I recommended the, the, the best stuff there, uh, at least in my opinion, it's the best stuff. Use what you got, fish what you got, see how it goes, uh, but it's going to up your game a little bit and you will be more effective with the right tools for the job. Okay, fly-wise, um, I'll just list off, say, four of my favorite patterns. I like a jiggy worm from Rainey's. Link in the podcast description to these flies. Uh, a jawbreaker by Solitude. Uh, I like a grim reaper. Um, a devil dog. A uh, devil dog by Rainey's would be another one that's kind of at the top of my list. I would start with those as far as weighted flies goes, um, and I'll get into when to fish poppers, when to fish weighted flies, and all that here in a moment, but um, those four patterns, if you got several of those four patterns, that would be a good place to start for weighted flies, and then you need a couple of flies that are unweighted for fishing uh, suspended, and uh, like a stall cup sculpin is very good for that, uh, a crispy critter, I'll put a couple of links in the in the podcast description for the unweighted stuff too. But we have a whole segment of our flies on our online store with bass flies. Um, so you're not going to lose a lot of them when you snag them up. Ideally, you go over there and get them. That's when fishing out of a float tube or a little one-person watercraft is a huge advantage because you can easily just pull yourself into the reeds, unhook your fly, use your fins, back out, keep working your way down the shoreline. It's super easy. Okay. Um, as far as uh, poppers go, uh, poppers are really, really effective starting uh, usually in early May on some of the warmer afternoons. Um, prior to that on largemouth, I don't have a lot of success. In April, I've had some really good days on some smallmouth lakes uh, with poppers. Uh, but for largemouth, start thinking about poppers in, in early May with an emphasis on the afternoon. And then as we get into later May, June, July, August, poppers every morning, every evening. Every morning, every evening, sometimes during the middle of the day. Those bass will attack surface poppers, and it is awesome. There's not much cooler than a four-pound largemouth busting a popper, um, especially the second it hits the water and makes a ring. Boom. Big fish on, man. It's just, a, it's so cool watching those bucket mouths bust poppers. So if you haven't done that before, put it on your list to do this summer. As far as poppers go, uh, just click the bass fly selection of our website. All of our poppers are good. Um, just get a couple of different sizes and a couple of different models. Uh, you'll find one that you like. Sometimes they want, um, you know, a green popper that looks a little bit more like a frog. Sometimes they want a white one that might look like the belly of a dying minnow. I'm not sure why they prefer one over another certain days, but poppers can be very effective. So, uh, you need a couple of flies that are either lightly, just barely weighted or unweighted to fish suspended. You need some poppers to work the surface, and then you need some heavy jig style flies to work the reed edges, drop offs, and work the bass when they're sitting a little bit lower, uh, which is kind of where we're at right now. Uh, from now to about mid-May, uh, until they're really up in the shallows on the spawn. And even when they are on the spawn, uh, those jig style flies are going to come in very handy. All right, so 
strategy-wise. We'll start with uh, we'll start with poppers, and then uh, we'll kind of work down the water column. So regarding poppers, uh, your first you, the, this this is true for all of this stuff. The cast matters, and that is probably one thing that is the most interesting to me about largemouth fishing is they generally see the fly from the time it impacts the water. If you're going to get them, they don't do a lot. You don't you don't get a lot of bass by just bringing it by things because most prey doesn't swim towards predators okay so that bass is going to be sitting there in in an ambush spot usually up against some structure whether that structure is submerged or maybe it's uh reeds against the shore a couple of lily pads that are in a unique spot whatever it is that that large mouth is waiting in ambush and you'll drop your fly in the water and for a popper how that thing lands makes a big difference. If you splat the popper down and it lands like a frog jumping off of a lily pad and makes a circular set of rings and it lands clean, good chance you're going to get a bass right there. And it might not eat it the second it lands. It might eat it after the first pop or second pop or two. But how that fly lands matters. So if you slap your fly line down really hard and then the popper hits later, Chances are the bass was so distracted by your line hitting the surface of the water that it's going to ignore the popper, okay? So land the popper well, try to land it independently of the line, land the popper first, and then let your your fly parachute to the water just a split second later after the popper. Okay, that's step one. The next is we want that to land clean. If we land with a lot of slack and then we start stripping the slack out of the line, now we've we have these shadows on the surface moving around. So we need to, we need that line to hit with a nice, tight, clean line. So that way when we start stripping, we're not moving a bunch of leader and fly line around on the surface, which can also add uh, distractions, okay? After we land the popper, we're gonna, we're gonna let things settle. I might gently draw my line tight and then I'm gonna pop it once and I'm gonna wait probably two or three seconds. I'm going to pop it again. I'm going to wait. And then I'm going to go pop, pause, pop, pause, pop, pause on about a one second interval for say five feet, 10 feet. At that point, I'm just going to repeatedly pop it back to the boat. If something's following, great. If not, I'm going to deliver it again. Most bass will eat in the first few feet of that presentation. So smallmouth are a little bit different because they prefer a they generally will sit over submerged structure like big boulder piles and rock piles more so than largemouth. Largemouth for fly fishermen will generally be pretty tight to visible structure for the most part. I want you to spend your time right around visible structure. Um, the next, uh, we're going to talk suspended flies. And uh, suspended flies are things that I like to fish when the bottom is really snaggy uh, or if you have kind of a weedy bottom. Uh, and I don't want to get my, my, my weighted flies down in that algae or down in the weeds and I'm getting snagged up. At that point, I'm going to introduce um, uh, a fly like a, a bait fish pattern um, that is either just very lightly weighted or unweighted. And the unweighted is key because that way when I strip and then pause, the fly doesn't take a nosedive. It actually gives the illusion of neutral buoyancy, just like a minnow. And so... Uh, there's a variety of flies on our website, but I'll take these suspended flies and I'll cast them in, you know, near the structure and I'll let them hit and I'll let them just kind of sit there for a moment and then I'll take one strip and then I'll pause for a couple of seconds 
and then I'll fish it a bit like the popper. I'll pop, pause, pop, pause. And often that fly is going to be within 6 or 12 inches of the surface. And man, when they eat these things, they just crush them. It is, it is awesome when they eat a suspended. When they come up and eat a suspended bait, it is a violent strike. And it is super cool. So I really like the takes on those suspended minnows or those suspended bait fish that I'm fishing. Uh, sp- uh, flies with spun hair heads. We have a couple of assortments. I think they were uh, engineered or designed by Dave Whitlock, who's a famous bass tire. Uh, but some of those spun hair heads have that real nice kind of neutral buoyancy. And those when those fish eat those, it's very exciting. So I'm going to fish those when the bottom is snaggy. Uh, and I, and I want to keep my, my fly up out of the weeds. And, uh, and especially uh, starting in late April, early May, when the bass move up into, in the, into the beds uh, to spawn. So the, the next one's going to be uh, uh, my, my more heavily weighted flies, and I'm going to fish those right on the edges of the weeds. I'm going to fish them when I'm not seeing any bass up in the shallows, uh, and I'm going to throw weighted flies right in against structure. Now, if you're a trout fisherman, this is where you're going to have to make an adjustment, okay? Trout are very willing to chase streamers and eat streamers when, when they're on streamers okay so they'll follow them they'll chase them you can strip them a long ways and the trout eat them and you feel the bite and it's all really simple uh bass tend to take when the fly is dropping okay so they inhale they will ambush and inhale that fly when it's on a slack line and you have to really tune up your predatory instincts and you need to feel for anything mysterious when that fish takes that fly. For me, a lot of times it's a void. It's the void of tension. I can no longer feel the fly weight. I strip, and even after I strip, I can still feel the fly sinking back to the bottom. But if I don't feel that fly sinking back to the bottom, there's a good chance a good bass picked that up while it was dropping, and now he's, he's got it in his mouth, and I need to set the hook. And engage him okay so there's a void attention a lot of times on these weighted flies because the bass's preference is to take it while it's dropping and that is really hard for new bass anglers to to kind of get and understand there's a real mystery behind every cast and you have to be under very good control to to decipher those nuances and uh that's one reason I really like fishing out of Watermaster boats with fins, because I can keep my boat dead steady, especially if I've got the wind at my back. I can just gently use my fins to hold my position in a breeze so I'm not being blown around. Um, even a five-mile-an-hour wind will push you enough to, to, to kill that perception of, of tension on that fly. So generally with the weighted flies, I'm going to pitch them in against structure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch my leader V its way to the bottom, and I'm just going to barely keep enough tension on it so that I can feel it sinking. And when I, when I feel like it's gotten all the way to the bottom, I'll let it sit for a second. I'll give it a, just a little tiny strip just to feel if anything, again, picked it up on the way down. And then I'll go and I will generally do about 12-inch strips, and, and my floating line will pick that fly up off the bottom, and then it will drop back down. I'll pick it up drop back down, pick it up, drop back down. 
I generally, when I'm working tight structure, I generally will only work about six or eight of those strips, and then I'm going to pitch it into a fresh spot. Generally, I've got to put that fly on the bass, and uh, I'm not going to strip it to the bass. I'm going to cast it to the bass. Um, and, you know, a lot, of these, a lot of these nuances I'm describing has, is, is really what's made professional bass angling what it is today because there are some guys, like I'm not a bad bass fisherman. I'll be honest with you. I enjoy it. I sense it. I like it. I get the vibe for it. I bass fished a lot growing up. Uh, with with really delicate uh, plastic worms and uh, fished a lot of really light spinning tackle with plastic worms and I got a good sense for dropping that just like I do with my fly you know a big rabbit leech fly is much different than a plastic worm and the way you drop that in the way you move it man there's a real sense to it and in in bass angling like competitive bass angling there's a big difference between guys that get it and those who don't and that's why the same guys are winning very consistently because there is a lot of nuance and touch to it. And as fly fishermen, we should really appreciate that. There is a level of skill required to catch these bass because I've heard from angler after angler after angler in our store that says, yeah, I've tried fishing bass. And there's like this sense that it's easy, that bass are aggressive, that you're just going to go out and catch them because they attack flies. And they attack all this crazy shit you see in the Bass Pro Shops catalog. And it could not be further from the truth. You know, that big tack, like big spinner baits and buzz baits and, and all sorts of crank baits and bigger polis and stuff, some of that will work in smaller water. But generally speaking, smaller water, those bass are a little bit, they're, they're generally best pursued on more subtle uh, presentations. They can be big flies, but they generally have to be fairly stealthy. It's got to be clean. It's got to hit the water right. That big tackle stuff, that's meant to be fished on big reservoirs and generally on bigger water. I'm making generalizations here, but generally that stuff is for covering a lot of water on big reservoirs. You as a fly fisherman are not covering a lot of water on big reservoirs. You are going to slowly and methodically pick apart smaller water using stealthier presentations to uncover some largemouth bass and have a great experience in the process. So I think bass fishing absolutely should be on your to-do list. Uh, get outfitted um, with, you know, it's basic tackle setup that I described here. But in May, it's going to be light out till 8, 9 o'clock. You can do this after work. You can do it any evening. You can jump in the lake, fish for an hour or two. I'm super hooked on it with my sons getting super engaged in bass fishing. We're all going to be in Watermasters this spring, getting out there as much as we can, even if we can only get a couple of hours in in the evening, hitting that twilight bite in the golden hour with poppers. If you have never done that, you've got to go experience that. And I'll, I'll you know, my, my closing will say, if you were to pick up an Outdoor Life catalog from the night, or not an Outdoor catalog, an Outdoor Life magazine or a Field and Stream magazine from the 60s, you know what's going to be in there? Fly fishing for bass. It is a really cool sport. It's classic. People were doing this long ago, and somehow fly fishing for bass kind of got wiped off the radar. I think we got, um, I don't know, we kind of have 
you know, I want to say AAs we're, we're, we're a bit self-righteous about fly fishing exclusively for trout and steelhead in the fly fishing world, and it doesn't have to be that way. Get out there, get your bass on, and uh, find a local lake or a local pond. Again, smaller the better. Small water is best for fly fishing. You don't have to compete with the big boats. Get yourself personal watercraft, even a float tube, and get out there, get your bass on.